In the course of researching four seasons of Subterraneans, I've run across a lot of small stories about the city. Some of them have been sitting in my planning document for years now, patiently waiting, but I've had to confront the truth. Most just aren't suitable for a full-length write-up. With that in mind, this episode is going to be a little different. I've drawn together four stories from the city which don't fit neatly anywhere else. So, without further ado, here's the finale of Season 4, Ephemera. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. painting that hangs in the office of Dr. Mohammed Amin, which doesn't come from this galaxy. Dr. Amin is a physicist whose research largely revolves around forensics and carbon dating. He works at University College London, where he trains students in the techniques required to accurately measure the age of inorganic specimens in a wide variety of different ways. This leads to all sorts of different fields, His students have gone on to work as archaeologists, criminal forensic investigators, and art forgery detectives, among other disciplines. Establishing the exact age of an item is a complex process, often inexact, but Dr. Amin has told me that he's at least glad that he mostly only works with inanimate objects. Bodies and organic matter are a whole different kettle of corpses. The painting in his office was brought in by a student on one of his courses. As a practical exercise, he'll often encourage students to go out to a local charity shop or antiques dealer and pick something up to bring in for study by the class. The painting itself is a somewhat amateurish landscape of London's skyline facing east, painted sometime around 1989 based on the half-finished figure of one Canada Square looming in the background. It is, bluntly, not very good. The brush strokes are thick and ugly, and the colours are uneven in a way which is a little abrasive to the eye. There's also a big visible chip in the bottom left-hand corner, where the students took a sample of the paint away for carbon dating. A little bit about the history of paint, then. The piece is done in acrylics, a type of paint which was developed in Berlin in the 1930s, and made widely commercially available in the 1950s. They're a product of the revolution in plastics which occurred throughout the 20th century, and are able to take on the character of many other types of paint through careful mixing and rejigging the constituent parts. In terms of dating the piece, almost all acrylics were created after the 1950s, which means they have a noticeably high level of carbon-14 in them. Carbon-14, or radiocarbon, is the isotope for which carbon dating is named, You measure the radioactivity level of the carbon-14 in an item to get a handle on roughly when it was created. The nuclear tests of the 1950s and 60s artificially scattered tons of carbon-14 into the atmosphere, nearly doubling the ambient amount prior to World War II, and this high concentration of radiocarbon is one of the telltale signs of art forgery, since it's entered the food chain and is now a part of basically everything on Earth. This bomb pulse of carbon can be measured in the tooth enamel of everyone born since the day it happened. 
The painting in Dr. Amin's office, though, doesn't show elevated levels of radiocarbon consistent with the time it was painted. In fact, careful study shows it contains barely any active radiocarbon at all. The acrylic mix is also a little weird. It doesn't match with any commercially available paint that they've tested it against. There's absolutely no explanation for it. The canvas is store-bought, traced to an art supply shop in Soho, but other than that, the painting appears to have been created entirely with materials which, at the very least, weren't made anywhere on Earth in, at minimum, the past 5,730 years. Dr. Amin is a physicist, so he's not prone to flights of fancy. His mind treats the piece as a little mystery which science will one day solve, made with the discovery of some cache of long-forgotten acrylics from a science lab with good nuclear shielding. It's not impossible. That said, when the student who brought it in went back to the antiques dealer from which he purchased it, a nondescript shop in Upper Holloway, she was surprised to find that it no longer existed. It wasn't just that the store had moved on either, leaving an empty shop front. The plot where it once stood was now a vacant lot, and local residents said that it had always been that way, as far back as they could remember. Dr. Amin doesn't have any pet theories for that. He just hopes that whoever sold the painting doesn't one day decide that they want it back. I've been walking into traffic recently. I'm sick of cars, sick of lorries, sick of vans. I remember the first couple of weeks of lockdown last year when the streets felt genuinely quiet, when the busy road outside my flat was empty. It was amazing. There were news stories everywhere about plants and animals returning to areas where they hadn't been seen in years. I'm sceptical of how effective it actually was, but I saw a little of myself in those stories. I was going out for long walks around the city, boldly returning to the ring roads and tarmac which wraps us like hospital restraints. That's all gone now. Traffic is firmly back on the roads and has been for over a year at this point. I hate it. Every time I walk along my street, across the busy junction to the local Tesco, I'm screaming internally at all the cars and vans going back and forth. Where are you going? What could possibly be so important? The thing is, I know most of the people are driving because they have no other choice, no other option. It's completely reasonable to still choose to avoid the tube this deep into the pandemic. And I know that loads of people are still being forced into work, even in industries which have no business staying open. I hate it though, and I hate the system which makes this the sensible choice. I don't want to have to constantly watch my step. So, recently, I've stopped. I'm just walking into traffic. 
straight down the middle of the road, making the move at my pace. I have completely given up, and I'd recommend it to anyone. I'm not alone in that, and I'm not the first to do it. When they were building the M25, a ring road motorway surrounding London, street parties and demonstrations cropped up all over the network as people resisted the tarmac and rubble destruction of the countryside. This movement is what popularised the protest platform technique, whereby you use three pieces of scaffolding and a plank of wood on the top to make a raised platform, which can't be removed without endangering the person sat up there. These are easy to set up, but very difficult for police to take down, so they're effective at blocking vehicles and delaying construction, provided the person at the top is well-stocked enough to hold on for the long haul. People would also bring pickaxes and destroy sections of the road which had already been laid, planting trees in the holes in the ground and forcing construction crews to tear them out again afterwards. Unfortunately, the M25 was eventually completed and opened by Margaret Thatcher in 1986. In less than a year, it became clear that the road was a complete failure, and it's been plagued by congestion and accidents ever since, as yet another example of car-centric policy malpractice. I've been walking into traffic a lot recently, and what's strangest about it is that it's going well. I haven't been hit. I haven't been attacked or yelled at. Nobody's even honked their car horn at me. We're taught from a young age to fear the vastness of our streets, but as I stare at the endless stream of traffic, driving in circles 24 hours a day without a destination in mind, I start to wonder if it's really there. Last week, I swear, a car drove clean through me as I walked down the middle of the North Circular, stuttering horribly as it went. And in that moment, I felt an incredible sense of peace and connection to the earth. The road disappeared beneath me and sous l'épave le plage, beneath the pavement, the beach. Was the danger imagined? Are these streets really our streets after all? Just waiting to be reclaimed? One of the less well-known aspects of the London Underground is the habitat it provides for a wide variety of animals. Obviously, everyone knows about the tube mice. I consider it a portent of good luck to catch a glimpse of one, scurrying around beneath the track from a crowded platform. But there are a dozen other animals which have adapted to live in the expansive tunnels beneath the city. It's mostly creatures with quick life cycles which allow them to adapt faster to strange new conditions. There are two species of moth, for example, which have been identified in different parts of the network, each with unique adaptations to the environment. One has adapted its pupae to stick better to the hanging metal fixtures above the escalators, and another has noticeably stronger wings than average to handle the high winds as trains push air through the stations. And those are just the unique species. The tunnels are full of regular old flies and insects, surviving on food waste and a species of edible lichen which can be found on walls between stations. Over half of the underground network is above ground, which means there are also plenty of creatures which use the tunnel entrances as temporary dens. 
Rabbits, badgers, and birds have all been found nesting or burrowing underground, as well as the ubiquitous urban foxes, which have been found stalking through closed stations at night, scavenging for scraps before leaving through the tunnel. There's one type of creature, though, which has been harder to track. A new species of bat is rumoured to have begun nesting in the deep-level tunnels. Much larger than the common pipistrelle found all over the UK, track workers have reported seeing bats with a wingspan of over four feet. The abundance of insects and the dark conditions mean this is far from implausible. The wall reinforcement of certain parts of the network is certainly large enough to support the creatures, which are said to be more solitary and more aggressive than the standard bat population. They're closer in size to megabat species, such as the golden-crowned flying fox found in the Philippines, but they behave more like birds of prey than insect eaters, reportedly going after large mice and rats. One worker reports shining a torch down the line on a quiet night to reveal a creature with huge black wings, hunched over the body of a house cat, which it had dragged in from a tunnel entrance just down the way. When it noticed the light, the creature let out a series of low-pitched clicks to try to warn him away from its kill, before giving up and disappearing away into the darkness. In early 2014, the news exploded with stories about the Rat Boat. The Lyubov Orlova was a cruise liner built in 1976, which had been abandoned on its mooring for years in Newfoundland, before being sold as scrap and towed out to sea in 2013, bound for the Dominican Republic. The day after leaving the dock, though, the tow line snapped, and the vessel drifted out to sea, an empty ship haunted by the ghosts of its former glory. Oh, uh, and also haunted by rats. Thousands and thousands of abnormally large rats which had taken up residence on the empty ship during its long mooring, and which were now stranded out in the ocean far from their former food supply in the harbour. Amateur zoologists theorise that there may be some other sources of food on the boat, such as plants growing on the deck or certain forms of sea life which would gather near the boat, Rats are very adaptable, but there certainly wouldn't be enough to support the entire population, and they would likely turn to cannibalism for too long. So, a gigantic lost cruise ship full of flesh-eating rats, doomed to drift eternally across the Atlantic. All the lights and tracking beacons were long since extinguished, so there's no reliable way to know exactly where the all-over was drifting. It had been loose for just under a year when it started to make the news in the UK, based on tidal algorithms predicting that it might show up near and eventually collide with the Irish coast, releasing a horde of vicious, blood-frenzied rodents into the ecosystem. What does all this have to do with London? Well, London supports an estimated population of around 20 million rats. 
Although they're spread all over the metropolis, central London has a much denser population than outside due to the abundance of restaurants and lunch spots producing a lot of food waste, which they live off. During the pandemic, though, the city was emptied out, and it still hasn't fully recovered. Both commuter and tourism figures dropped to lows not seen since World War II, which is really saying something given how tourism figures were during World War II. There are some reports that claimed the rat population was booming during this period, as sightings became much more common and extermination services were neglected. This isn't quite true, though. The reality is that rats were moving more aggressively in search of food sources, overcoming their normal caution and broadening their diet to include daytime foraging in supermarkets and, for those poor rodents who couldn't find anything else, each other. The all-over hasn't been found to this day, but central London has become its own little rat boat. For every column inch about dolphins returning to an urban river or wildflowers sprouting through the pavement, it's important to remember the furious gnashing teeth which claw each other apart in the desperate streets of happenstance. This is the world that's been chosen for us, set adrift on the currents of history. I fear that, in the event we ever make landfall, it'll be a fight against our programming to avoid destroying everything and ourselves, in the process. Season 4 of Subterraneans. I've been James Thompson. The show will now be on hiatus for a while as I work on the next phase. To keep up with Subterraneans, you can subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind the scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. You can also follow Subtopod on Twitter or reach me by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. Special thanks to my £10 and above Patreon subscribers, Hiran and Alex. Rat boat, 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 rat boat. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.